from Nashville, Tennessee. You are listening to On Background, presented by Civic Point. I'm Tom Lee. Before we get started, a word about our podcasts. At Civic Point, we work around public decisions and very public decision makers all the time. While few of us will be Speaker of the House or Governor or a CEO, we all watch what they do. And so we wondered, how do they do it? Where do they get their ideas, their vision, or sometimes just the guts to do something? What's in their background that makes them leaders today, and how might we learn from it? So, each episode, we'll introduce you to some of Tennessee's most compelling decisions and decision-makers. That's why we're here, and that's why we're glad you're here, too. So, let's go on background. The U.S. Census says 654,610 people live in Nashville. That's 51,000 more than just five years ago. Put another way, two-thirds of Tennessee's counties don't have as many people, period, as Nashville added since 2010. A quiet, prosperous merchant town where folks once thought the Grand Ole Opry was a little too country— has become a city of the world. One in eight born in another country. Two in five non-white. America's most popular bachelorette party destination and the second most popular city for millennials. It didn't happen overnight, though. Nashville long ago got used to mayors born elsewhere. A native hasn't been elected mayor in 30 years. But Megan Barry is something else altogether educated a teacher. She came here for graduate school in the midst of the 1990s recession, married a Vanderbilt professor, raised a son, worked in corporate ethics, raised money for dozens of nonprofits at her Belmont Hillsborough home filled with modern art, got elected to Nashville's Metro Council, and in 2015, beat a seven-candidate field to become Nashville's mayor. We met in the office of the mayor, where, for the first 79 years of Nashville's historic courthouse, only men sat behind the desk. Mayor, thanks for being here. Thank you for uh, being in my office. I appreciate it. It's great to be here. You've made some changes to the place. Yes, it's a little brighter, a little less um, brown carpet, brown walls, and brown drapes. Uh, A little light. There's art everywhere, too. Well, there is. You know, I tell you what, the black and white photos that I have around my office are Nashville photos. So the, there are three photos from the last eight months that were taken down on Broadway. And if you were to see them, you would see the energy and music. And, and uh, my favorite is the family band, where you have a group of kids playing uh, down on Broadway. But... The wonderful photo that I have over there is an Ed Clark, and it's from the early 40s, and it's the back of the Ryman, and you see DeFord Bailey sitting there, who was the first African-American to play on the Opry stage. He played the harmonica, and uh, he lived here, and later life was a, a, had a shoeshine shop, um, and we just recognized him for his birthday uh, over off of uh, 12th South recently and with his family. He, he, he's not with us anymore, but his family is. He was the first big star of the Opry, and almost no one knew over the radio that he was African-American. That's exactly right. 
So it's a, it's a wonderful picture, and it just reflects uh, Nashville's musical history all throughout my office. I love it. One of the things that we now see in Nashville all the time is people coming here because they want a piece of something, whatever that is. What was it that brought you here? Well, I came in the early 90s, and like I think a lot of people, I came here to go to school. Uh, I went to Vanderbilt. I got my MBA. I was going to stay 18 months because that's how long it was going to take me to get in and get out of the South, and here I am, and I love it. I can't imagine living anywhere else. From Kansas, Kansas City, it must have been, in those days, not as much of a transition. In fact, you probably thought you were coming to a small town. Well, actually, I'd lived in London for the previous three years before I moved to Nashville. So coming to Nashville was very different uh, than London. And uh, But uh, I really didn't know what to expect, uh, having not spent any time here. Did you bring a sense of artistic interest with you, or is that a thing you developed here? Well, when you say artistic, I'm not, I, I definitely didn't come because I can sing. <laughs> but, well, you, you have a style. It's evident in your office. It's evident in uh, your, your home, the way you choose to dress and, and B, you have a, an eye for something. Did that, did that happen before you got here? Or? Yeah, I think I, I, you know, I grew up in a house that was very visual. Um, I had parents that were, you know, this is the seventies. So think, you know, great shag carpet and blue walls and uh, beads. So, I mean, I think I grew up in a, in a home that was very focused on the aesthetic, uh, and that was something that I think I, I, I love and I grew up with, and it's something that's definitely a part of who I am. That might surprise people who know your dad was a Marine. Yes. He Did was, that surprise your dad? That he's um, <laughs> that he was a Marine? <laughs> that he lived in a home where aesthetics was important. Well, he was actually the one that was focused on the aesthetic. Um, my, my dad is really uh, a great visualizer. And, and, you know, and not everybody has that capacity. And he went on in his life and was very successful in real estate because he could bring somebody into a space and then help them see what was possible. And, and that's a real gift. And, and I think a lot of people don't have that. So uh, he definitely did. And he always created that space for us as kids. Is that a fair description of the job of mayor? I think it is. I think it's actually a really fair description. You have to be able to visualize and then you have to be able to bring other people along to see that vision. So I was interested in learning about your high school. You went to a, a private Catholic girls' school in Kansas City. If I try to say it, I'll mess it up. I'll let you say it. Well, um, let's just say that my French teacher told me that I shouldn't speak, um, but I can say it. Notre Dame de Sion was. And your, uh, <laughs> and your school song is in French too, right? It is. Can and you, you sing will it? Definitely don't want to sing it. It's about little swans. Um, that was our, uh, our 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 mascot. We were little swans. <laughs> <laughs> well, what struck me, besides the swans yeah. part, was uh, this order of nuns who yes. had created this school had, have, it seems, an interesting mission. Yes. Very focused on diversity, very yep. focused on inclusivity. Yes. What did you learn from them? You know, it was interesting uh, that this particular uh, uh, nun, nun uh organization was very focused on bringing 
Christians and Jews together after World War II, and they were a French order. And uh, in fact, when I was in school, we still had nuns who had come from France that uh, uh, had been through the war. And so it was actually really incredible. And you know, you don't think about that when you're in high school, about the, the, the history, the importance, the, the, the stories. And of course, now I wish I could go back and actually ask uh, Sister Lucienne about that. But, uh, you know, she's, she's long gone now. But uh, they definitely instilled in us a sense of, of fairness and justice and um, cooperation and that idea of community. I noticed on the school's website the quotation from Micah 6 8. Mm. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. Yeah. You learn something of that from that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that uh, I, the, the humble piece was absolutely something that the nuns brought uh, every day to school. And, and, and I'd like to say that in a girl's school, we, we were all <laughs> as humble as they were. We actually were fairly awful. Um, but I think, well, it was a girl's school. It was a girl's school, right. but you know, the, those nuns were, were, were so beautiful in their faith and in their commitment to education. And then I think that was absolutely something that I also uh, took with me. There was a moment in your campaign last year when your faith was called out and, yeah. and your husband's as well. Yeah. And you went back to that time in, in Catholic school in the way that you address those, those issues and particularly what those nuns taught you. And it strikes me now, as you say that, the humble part was a way that you approached that. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I mean, to, to have one's faith ever put on display and, and, and questioned is, is just kind of an interesting thing. But I think that, you know, I was always taught that, that your faith is personal and it's private and it's not something that you, that you take out. And, and, and I think that is that humble component from, from the nuns. But one of the things that, and I've talked about this, that with uh, uh, Pope Francis, who I I think is really um, incredible, you know, his whole focus on the Lent conversation has had a huge impact on, on, my life and, and since he's come in where, you know, as a, as a Catholic, we always give up something for Lent. We give up chocolate, we give up a latte. And, and last year he challenged all of us, uh, to give up our indifference, um, give up our indifference to the poor, to the, the incarcerated, the grieving, the, the, the folks in need. And I think that is the, the essence of, of faith is to make sure that you are engaged in your community and that you've given up your indifference. In Martin Luther King's Memphis speech, in the mountaintop speech, he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Mm. And he says the difference between compassion and justice, both of which we're called to, is compassion is getting the guy out of the ditch. Justice is making sure nobody else has to travel that dangerous road again. Right. And, and he told that story at length and said, this is why we're here. It's not about compassion. This is my understanding of how we're called to justice. And, and I think that the Good Samaritan story is one that you, know, you and I talked about not too long ago, where the other takeaway from that is that beautiful moment about the fact that the Samaritan actually has to cross the road to render aid, whereas 
several other people walk by. Not only do they walk by, they go on the other side so that they don't even have to see um, the, this person in pain. So, you know, this idea of crossing over uh, is, is one that is, I think is a very powerful image, and I think that's one thing that Nashville does really well. We are a community that crosses over to the other side of the road to, to render that aid. You've been trying to do that recently by staging a series of conversations around questions of racial justice yes. that seem to keep plaguing American cities. Can you talk a little bit about how you've developed your approach to get in front of that sure. and, and maybe in some ways to catch up to that? Well, you know, Nashville has a long history of being a place where com conversations that are very complicated can happen um, and that we respond in a nonviolent way. In fact, yesterday I had the, the opportunity to talk with some of our MLK high school students at the Civil Rights Reading Room at our, our, our main down, downtown library. And we were kicking off the book March, which is John Lewis's book about his time in Nashville, and uh, it's our community-wide read this year, and John Lewis will then come to Nashville and, and, and spend time talking about that, but, but I think that Nashville is different, and we have that history of being different, about taking conflict, and then having conversation, and then moving to action, because the conversation piece is really important, but if you don't actually end up taking the next step, which is the action piece, people become very frustrated, and I think you know, you can look at um, at uh, when when the protesters marched to the to the courthouse to confront Ben West about desegregating our lunch counters, and and the question was asked, you know, why can't our lunch counters be desegregated? And that conversation happened. But what was most important was that Ben West said, "You're right; they need to be desegregated." The action came after. So, and I think we have a history of that. We just gathered. Uh, a thousand people at the Music City Center about a week and a half, two weeks ago, to have a conversa conversation about race, equity, and leadership in our in Nashville, and we had complicated conversations where everybody around the table was able to have through Lipscomb's facilitation model up to fourteen minutes to speak. And I think oftentimes in a when you're having a complicated conversation, the few and loud voices are the ones that are heard. What we wanted to make sure was that every voice was heard. And so this is a great model. We're going to continue this. But what we will see is actually things will come out of this. And we're already doing a lot of what people um, wanted to talk about, but there's always more to do. How then, in that spirit of taking action, do you do, you do that next thing? How do you lift up a thousand different voices and then say, so therefore we should one, two, three? Well, there isn't um, just one linear piece. I think mm -hmm. what you end up seeing is a, a comprehensive uh, approach to many different facets. So right now, partnering with Bishop Walker and Nashville Unites um, and My Brother's Keeper, which is a, a President Obama initiative, we are taking these conversations out next week into the community and having these community conversations in barbershops, specifically focused on asking what, as a community, can we be doing for young African-American males, making sure that they have the equity and opportunity that uh, is part of Nashville right now. This year marks the 150th anniversary of 
Tennessee's ratification of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which put ideas of equal protection under right. the law and due process yep. into the law and birthright citizenship. Yep. And your time as mayor has seen the city and your time in this community as a public servant has seen the community confront all of those ideas. I wonder, how is Nashville different for you today from the city you came to 20-plus years ago, especially around the people who have come here from so many places? I think many people in Nashville will be surprised to know that we're now in double digits in terms of the share of our population of folks who were born in another country, much less another city or place. Right, right. How's, how's Nashville changed in that way since you've come? Well, I, you know, it's a great question, Tom, because I think, you know, I, I talk to folks all the time who uh, the, the number of native Nashvillians, people born and raised here, has definitely uh, less and less. Uh, and the people that I talk to uh, who have come here, as you said, from other countries, other states, has ballooned. But I think what has really struck me is that even though I wasn't born here and even though I wasn't brought up here, I'm a Nashvillian. And I think that has been what makes Nashville different is those people who come here almost immediately want to become part of Nashville. And, and so we don't use terms um, in my office uh, like immigrant and refugee. You were an immigrant. You were a refu refugee. Now you're a Nashvillian. So how do we take that and and connect you to the fabric that's Nashville? And and I think that's it, that that matters. And I think that we've seen our 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 strong economy. I mean, you can't uh, look at our economy and not think that being a warm and welcoming place doesn't have tremendous economic benefit. I mean, our uh, you know right now we've got three point six billion dollars last year in code permits that were pulled. That's a billion dollars in the previous year. That's 27 cranes in the air. Those are jobs and prosperity for Nashvillians. So as a welcoming community, I can't think of anybody else I've known in public office who's welcomed more people into her house. Oh. How did you get this hospitality gene that's yeah. Uh, I, well, I love people. So I mean, I love that I get to meet people. I love that people want to to meet each other because I think that's the other thing. We had the the Marines were here last week. We just had this wonderful week of of the Marines, and and uh, I invited the Marines to come to my house. And I expected that I would really just get the the, the high level brass, but. They said, please, you know, in include more. And so they did. They gave, they included everybody from enlisted guys to the, to the brass. And it was interesting to see them interact. And in fact, one Marine told me, he said, you know, you would never have this happen uh, normally where I would be able to talk to a three-star general. And so thank you for that. And I think that is also what makes Nashville so unique is we, we, we create these places where people can come together and talk who might not normally meet up with each other. And, uh, and, and that's a reflection of the people who live here. I mean, that's not me. That's, that's Nashville. That, that's who we are. And, and, and we have a, a, an incredibly vibrant faith community here in Nashville, and I think that also makes Nashville different. Um, I, I, I do say, though, that it is one of those things that resonates with me that 
uh, probably the the most segregated place on Sunday mornings is still our church pews. Um, our faith communities do have, I think, an opportunity to become much more integrated, and uh, and and I think that you you see that somewhat. Um, but that that is something that there's a long history there, and I know that things don't change overnight. But it would be nice if we were a little bit more. Uh, integrated on Sunday mornings. A lot of work left to do, huh? Yeah. So we talked about the Constitution a little while ago, and that gives us a chance to think about the 19th Amendment. Yes. To the Constitution. Nashville has a special place in that history. We do. And you sit in this office as uh, the first woman to hold this office. I know you get asked this question all the time, but I want to ask it a little differently. Can you connect the person who's sitting in this office with the kid growing up in Kansas City and, and put those two, those two people together and say, okay, here's how that arc happened for me and how it can happen for the next woman to sit in this office? Yes and no. I, I mean, yes, I can reflectively make that connection, but I think if I thought about it, you know, projecting forward as that child, there's no way... Uh, I would have ever thought that I would sit in, in a seat that uh, was the mayor of Nashville, Tennessee. And, and I think that where, when I look back and think about how did I actually get here, it, it's based on a lot of other people in my life who opened doors for me. And what I was at least smart enough to do at the time was to walk through every door that ever opened, never knowing where it might take me. And some, sometimes those doors weren't the right doors, but I never missed an opportunity to take advantage of, of, of an opportunity. And I think my goal has always been then to make sure that I'm reaching my hand back to pull, pull the next person through that door. And, uh, and so I, that's, that's how I think these things are possible. And, I, and Betty Nixon, who was a huge uh, mentor of mine, just recently passed away. And, and uh, you know, Betty was one of the first women to run for the mayor's office here in, in Nashville. And you know, she was not successful, but you know, she, she, what a powerhouse, right? So she went on to be incredibly engaged in the neighborhood movement, the community, and, and made a huge difference in Nashville. She didn't ultimately sit in the mayor's seat, but she sat in a lot of other seats. Um, and because she ran for mayor, that door opened for her to do all these other things. And I think that's how you have to think about things. You know, you may not be successful, but you should walk through the door and try. There must be then a sense for you of trying to make sure the community has as many paths mm. for people. I, I wonder when you, when you see uh, girls in schools, do they ask you, how did you do this? Or do they get a sense of, do they ask you about, well, how can I do this? What can I do to be mayor? Well, you know, it's interesting. First of all, they're always looking oftentimes behind me at the the two guys who are my detail thinking that they're the mayor. So, Well, <laughs> one of them is very tall. Yes, he is. And, uh, and, and uh, Officer Dixon is, is, is delightful. And it's, he's always so quick to say to these, these young women, no, actually, you know, she's the mayor. And, uh, and, uh, Sergeant Forrest, who's also with me, is is often quoted as saying, "A girl can be the mayor." <laughs> so, and he's right. How about that? And how about that? And I love that I get to be that visual. And we, we we talked earlier about being able to see something and visualize something. And I think it, for for young women to to see someone 
who is a woman in a position of, of, of authority and power and elected office helps them see that that's possible. And, uh, and I think that's a very strong message. And, but, but I want to go back to the, the paths because you're absolutely right. So I'm, I'm deeply committed to making sure that youth in our community have multiple paths to follow to achieve their own dreams. And so we are getting ready to roll out a, a whole approach called Opportunity Now, which will engage our young people by putting 10,000 of our 14 to 24-year-olds next summer to work in paid, meaningful internships. Because uh, we know a lot of things about how to help people uh, be elevated out of poverty. And we know, know three things for sure. You have to graduate from high school. You have to get your first job. And then you, ha- you cannot have a kid until you're financially stable. If you do those three things, the likelihood that you'll be poor is greatly reduced. So that middle piece about helping our kids get that first job is something that I'm passionate about. And I need you know, 7,500 of those jobs to come from the private community. So anybody out there who's listening to your podcast who may have some internships, we'd love to talk. Now is time. <laughs> now is the time. What was your first job? Ah, my first job was making strawberry pies at a local restaurant. I hate strawberry pie. <laughs> but I, I hold a lot of strawberries and I made a lot of strawberry pies. <laughs> my first job was wiping tables at McDonald's. But I, I can still do a quarter pounder. Well, and, and so... Probably too and, many of them. And, you know, and Tom, that, that's really important because I, the other thing that I want our youth to know that these are first jobs. They're not your last job. And in fact, if if we can help them see that this just puts you on the path to be a lawyer, to be and you know, to go to college, what whatever it is that you're not still wiping tables at McDonald's and I'm not making strawberry pies. But the thing is, we had to get that first job in order to get that second and that third and that fourth job. And that's what this is all about. And just to learn what it is to work and yes. to derive some satisfaction from yeah. it, as well as the money. Oh, absolutely. And that's why these internships are paid internships, um, because there is value in work. And we need to reward our, our kids who are working with that understanding. So in that respect, I have to ask, you were a school teacher once, right? Well, I have an undergraduate degree in elementary t- education, and I did spend see. about five minutes in the classroom <laughs> before oh. I realized that it's a really hard job. It is a really hard job. Yeah. Any, anything else you'd take from that other than this is a really hard it's job? It's really hard. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I was really I, – I loved um, getting my degree in elementary education. It did put me in the classroom when I did my – I practicum teaching, and I did do some teaching after uh, I graduated, and it it helped me understand that that what we see happening in our uh, classrooms every day, the teacher is the most important resource a kid has, and and making sure then that you know from a policy perspective now, and and somebody who's not in the classroom but who has a, a deep commitment to education, making sure that we have the best teachers who can serve our kids and giving them what they need. That's what I took from that. And you know this was the case when you ran. It's still the case today. We are having a conversation about what schools should look like, how Mm -hmm. schools work best for kids, what kind of alternatives there are out there. What's the... That conversation is often acrimonious and difficult 
How, how can that conversation be better? Well, I think that we've seen uh, school board elections. We're past that now. We have a new superintendent with great uh, energy and fanfare that has been brought to Nashville with the collective of the community, the business community, the Nashville Education um, Foundation, and the mayor's office helping to, to identify somebody in Dr. Sean Joseph who I think brings the capability and the capacity to do exactly that. He's very much focused on making sure that every child has a high-quality education, and, and he's not distracted by the conversations that we've had. He, he's very much focused on providing an excellent public education experience, and, and I think that's... I'm so happy about that. I want us to move past that. I mean, I, I have heard him speak on several occasions, and I, and I love it uh, when he is addressing both people who... Uh, have been passionate around charters, who've been passionate around public education and, and, and these different models, and he recognizes and, and celebrates their passion and uh, and then says, like, but, you know, let's focus that passion onto the kids. And I think that's exactly the right message. One of your predecessors used to say that education is the most optimistic thing we do yeah. in the community, and it does seem that that conversation is often out of tune with that idea. It's it's not an always an optimistic conversation. Right. And I think I think Dr. Joseph is definitely um, bringing that optimism and that and that focus uh, for the community and I'm very grateful for that. So, you're not only the first uh, woman to hold this office, you're also the first member of Nashville's Metro Council to sit in this seat and I wonder which was more difficult <laughs> to overcome because there is such a difference between being in a legislative body and and being the executive. Sure. And and I, I wonder now that you you're a year in what you've come to appreciate about that difference. Well, I mean, I, you know, the Metro Council is a, an incredible body that gets to serve constituents at a at a very grassroots level. You've got uh, constituents who are reaching out to them uh, to to help with sidewalks and dogs and trash. And, and, and the fact that we have a large body allows them to do that really high touch um, for their constituents. And, and I think that's really important, again, for Nashville. And uh, I have some brush I'd like to have picked up, by <laughs> the way. I'm sure you do. Who's your council member? <laughs> Kathleen Murphy. <laughs> well, um, I, I hope, hope she's listening. I hope she is. Uh, and so, you know, I think that that helps. Uh, pe- people feel much more engaged in their in their government. The executive branch is is different, and, and it's an interesting model. There are other uh, models out there where the mayor is actually part of the council, but in our model, it's not. And and I think that uh, what I've come to appreciate is just the complex organization that is metro government, and and the responsibility of the mayor to run that complex organization with over you know twenty seven departments uh, and ten thousand employees a $2 billion budget and uh, everything from making sure that the trash is getting picked up to fire and police and uh, roads are being paved. So, I mean, that's the role of of the mayor and then also to set the vision of of our city. Where do you think Nashville goes? How does Nashville manage some of its issues? It does take a little longer to get around these days than it it once did. Uh, On the other hand, we have... 27 cranes in the sky, right. uh, building a, a future for us. How does a city keep that, grow that, do you think? 
it will be a year on Sunday that uh, I've been in office. And obviously you, you, you take a reflective look back to say, what, what have we done? What have we accomplished? And, and, and I think when we think about what that is, I, I heard a great quote today and it was, um, if you've already realized the fruits, then you haven't dreamed big enough. And, uh, and so, you know, we're, we're dreaming and, uh, and doing, but, uh, um, we've, we've, we've made progress on a lot of these issues, but there's still a lot of work to do. Because it can slip away, right? Yeah, it's going to go fast. I mean, I, you know, I have a timer on my phone. I wake up every morning and I, uh, with my sense of urgency, and I look at how many days I have left uh, until uh, August of 2019, because I know I've got that time for sure. So what can I do in the 1,003, what's 1,034 days? Um, and uh, that's, that's my time. And that's what I've got here in this office. Thank you, Megan Berry. Tom, thank you. From Civic Point in Nashville, Tennessee, you've been listening to On Background. I'm Tom Lee, your host and producer. Barry Richards is our editor and engineer. Our theme is by Josh Kramer. Civic Point is the government relations affiliate of Frost Brown Todd, one of America's 150 largest law firms with 12 offices in eight states, including Nashville. Nashville.